Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Mariana Figuero, director of the Light and Health Research Center, which is the new Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Research Center in New York's Capital District. Scientists at the center are researching ways to use light to improve people's lives, including those living with conditions like Alzheimer's, disease, and depression. You can find out more at mssm.edu. Welcome, Dr. Mariana Figuero. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, you're not an original New Yorker. Where do you come from? Well, originally, in my very, very past uh, life, I, I come from Brazil. I'm originally from Brazil, but I, I've been in upstate for over 25 years, and now I'm back and forth between New York City and upstate. In Great Barrington, where I live, that you may have been here for 40 years, but they said to me, you'll never be a native. <laughs> I'm afraid I won't, but I'm trying to look less like a tourist now. And I can tell because when you were referring to your subway stop when we had a conversation, you referred to it as the metro. Uh, yes. That's pretty funny. Okay, so tell me about yourself. I've seen your picture, but tell me about who you are and who your parents were and all like that. Well, I, um, as I said, originally from Brazil, um, I, my mother was Cuban. So she actually was a Cuban-American. So I have half of my family in Miami, so I'm half American in a way. And then my dad was Brazilian. They got married. She went to Brazil. She was a little bit crazy going to Brazil in the 60s, but she survived and built a, a beautiful family. But I always had sort of half of my heart here in the States. So I came up. Um, I am actually an architect by training. Really? And, yeah, yeah. And then I came up. I thought, uh, you know, I found what used to be the Lighting Research Center um, at Rensselaer in upstate New York. Um, I got my master's in lighting and then got my Ph.D. in, in science at RPI and remained working at the Lighting Research Center uh, for over 25 years, and then um, we really expanded a lot the area of light and health, which is really how light affects um, our health overall, so circadian rhythms, sleep, uh, depression, anxiety, um, alertness, so keeping people alert at night. So that area expand, expanded a lot, and that's when the the partnership and moving into Mount Sinai made a big you know, makes sense for us. It made sense to start getting close to a medical school to be able to expand uh, the work that we were doing. So I know uh, Mount Sinai pretty well as a native New Yorker myself. I walk by it all the time. How did it come to pass that the Lighting Center and Mount Sinai got together? Well, I had a collaborator here at Mount Sinai, Dr. Bill Red, where we were working on delivering light to uh, myeloma transplant cancer patients. So these were patients that were receiving the transplant in the hospital. We changed the lighting. We added new lighting to, to the hospital room, and we were seeing a very strong effect on improving their sleep, improving um, their, their circadian rhythms, um, reducing neutropenic fever and inflammation and so on. And then he said, well, we got we to gotta bring you to Mount Sinai. And I met the department chair here, Anatine, who is an amazing person, and I told her, I said, I'm willing to come to Mount Sinai, but we have to bring the whole center because I didn't want 
to have, uh, first of all, to leave my teammates uh, behind. And I also ask her, we need to have a space in upstate because I can't relocate 20 people at the time or 20 people that were moving. And they agreed to do it. So we are actually um, about to to um, open up our space in Menans. Uh, they they rented a beautiful space for us up there, 15,000 square foot, and we moved everybody, all the 20 people in the group. And uh, it's been fascinating. I mean, it's uh, it's been a, a sort of a restart of of the new center, but a continuation of the expertise and the. I think the family um, together, which has been amazing. Well, let's begin here, if we can, Dr. Figueroa, with the concept of light. How important is light? It's much more important than we think it is. Um, I always say that um, I had a TED Med talk, and I started by saying we we think that light is just flipping the switch on and flipping it off, and it's you know we tend to take it for granted until. The power goes out, and you're trying to find your flashlight. You don't know where it is. And like, wow, you know, light makes a big difference just just in the basics, uh, be able to see and navigate in the space. But light also has a what we call a non-visual effect, uh, which it, it really it synchronizes our biological clock to the local time on Earth. So, for example, when you travel multiple time zones and you go from here to Europe, it's going to be the light-dark pattern in Europe that's going to reset your biological clock so that you are synchronized and re-entrained to a new local time. But the other important thing about light is it does that daily for us. So if we're staying in a dark cave for two or three weeks, we're going to continue to have these circadian rhythms, which are Every rhythm in our body that repeats it approximately every 24 hours. So the sleep-wake cycle is a great example. We're awake during the day, asleep at night. So, but this cycle will run with a period slightly longer than 24 hours. In humans, if you have no exposure to the external environment, you're going to run these period. These circadian rhythms run with a period of about 24.2 hours. So what light, specifically morning light, every day does, it brings your clock back to 24 hours so that you are in sync with your watch. So it's pretty important. And what's most interesting is that sometimes you're in a dim light environment, you can see in the space, but that may not be enough to synchronize your biological clock. You need more light, higher amounts of light, and you also need a little bit more bluer color light. Um, so we tend not to have that as much in the built environment, such as, for example, nursing homes or prisons or sometimes even in schools. We tend not to have as much light as we need. Um, and that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, change the light inside buildings so that you can have the light that you need to maintain that synchronization. Well, I'm not really sure. There's a great deal that I want to talk to you about. You mentioned the word bluer. What did you mean by that? You know, I like to refer to as we're blue sky detectors. Right. So we're looking at lights that are more shifted towards the daylight color, more shifted towards a bluish-white color. Um, if you think about an incandescent light source, it looks warm color. It looks yellower. 
And if you buy bulbs that are called daylight, they tend to be a little bit more bluer. So we tend to be slightly more sensitive to these bluer lights. Now, doesn't mean we have to have bluer lights everywhere because with your warmer colors, you can still have an effect on the biological clock. You just need to raise the light levels a little bit more. Uh, one of the things that we're telling people is that the built environment, especially homes, tend to be very low light levels during the day and perhaps too much light during the evening. So we're not having a very robust light and dark cycles over the course of 24 hours. And that's what we're trying to change. So each of us who lives in a house have decisions to make. Are we making bad decisions? Unfortunately, I think we are because what we're doing is we are lighting up our homes or lighting up our spaces based on how we see the space. And your visual system is much more sensitive to light than your circadian system. So what seems to be fine for you because you can see doesn't necessarily mean it's fine for your biological clock. The problem is that we don't know, right? There's no... Um, not Like when you're hungry, your stomach tells you you're hungry because it starts growling, right? Mm -hmm. But there's nothing telling you, hey, I don't have enough light here uh, or there's not enough light for your biological clock. So part of what we have been doing is we're actually trying to work with a, a system that measures your light exposure, talks to an app, and then that app gives you a feedback saying, hey, you need a brighter space. You need more light. You need to go outside. So it just gives you, or opposite at night, it says, hey, that screen is too bright. So reduce the brightness of the screen or turn off the screen. So we're working on a system like that. We're not there yet, but that's sort of what we hope to see in the future are systems that are adapting so that it thinks for you and it tells you whether you have good or bad lighting in the space. So, Dr. Figueroa, my question is, daylight savings time, <laughs> question mark. Well, there's a lot of controversy on the daylight savings time, and definitely the worst is now when we're springing forward, right? Mm -hmm. um, because what happens is you, you lose an hour of sleep. Um, obviously, it, 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 it does take about a week or so for you to readjust. I mean, sometimes it's less than that, but... Within a week, you're pretty much readjusted. But there is a little bit of a, um, concern, especially with, with uh, adolescents, mm -hmm. because, because adolescents tend to go to bed late and wake up late, and they have a harder time to adjust to that spring forward. Um, so it, it can be hard on the body. Um, there is some, especially I, th I know in Europe, people are now saying that we should not have the summer um, daylight savings, that we should stay always in the winter um, time. And so, but, but again, uh, there, there's always politics and commerce. I mean, people say that you tend to, when you get out of work later in the evening, if it's daylight, you tend to go out and do stuff. If it's dark, you go home. So, you know, there is some, some financial benefit of having that daylight um, so, but in terms of your biological clock, uh, you, you will readjust, except that there are 
some groups of people, like adolescents, that tend to be later that have a little bit more difficulty readjusting to that. We are talking to Dr. Mariana Figueroa, director of the Light and Health Research Center. So there are so many ways we could go here. But let me ask you a provocative question. How does life affect our sex life? Oh, it is so funny because there, there has been um, some studies where um, it, it's actually more sleep that um, what happens is light synchronizes your biological clock, which then uh, sends a, a message to your sleep-wake cycle so that you are asleep at night and awake during the day. So it's very important to maintain that synchronization so that your body knows when it's time to be asleep and when it's time to be awake. Does that mean we shouldn't be taking naps? Actually, normally, no. Normally, you should be awake during the day and fully asleep and consolidated at night. People that take naps typically are people that don't sleep well at night, mm -hmm. and they have to take the naps to, to basically dissipate the, the sleep pressure that they accumulate during the day. But if you are synchronized, you are designed to be awake and alert um, during the day, except for the post-lunch dip. And that may mm -hmm. have a little bit of a justification for that siesta, um, right after lunch, mm. that you take a nap right there. If you're going to take a nap, that's the best time to take a nap. Mm -hmm. It's right after in the siesta time or right after the post-lunch dip. But in general, we're supposed to be awake during the day and then asleep at night. So it's a 16-hour awake, 8-hour um, sleep, and that should be very consistent. Now, if you don't have your biological clock in sync with your sleep-wake cycle, you're not going to have that regularity, and then you're going to be sleep-deprived. And then going back to your question mm. about does it affect uh, sex life, there has been studies saying that if uh, males are sleep-deprived, they tend to have more trouble um, uh, procreating or having, you know. But they did that. The study was done with fruit flies, so oh, yeah. it hasn't been done with, with <laughs> humans yet. But a lot of people sort of extrapolate some of the work done with fruit flies uh, uh, to humans. So clearly the, the, the fruit fly that was sleep-deprived was not very interested in sex, basically. That's what they showed in the study. That is so interesting. So when we talk about how humans react to light, how about animals? I'm sure that there have been a lot of studies. For example, we have a wonderful bird feeder outside. They seem to come with a light. They don't seem to eat at night. What do you think? Yes, and what's most amazing about humans, uh, about animals, is that unlike humans, because we basically be became inside the built environment, so we lost a lot of that connection with the outdoor environment. But animals, their reproductive system is also very much linked to day length because they need to know when it's winter time, and they have to. Um, you know, reduce eating, or they also have to um, not reproduce because they don't want to have, you know, babies or whatever you call in, in, in the middle of the winter. And then when the day starts getting longer, they get that signal that it's time to procreate and it's time to, to reproduce and it's time to start looking for food and so on. So they are very much linked to day length. That's how it's temperature and day length, but that's really how they know 
what to do and when to do what they need to do for survivalship. Circadian rhythms are very important for two things, survival and uh, reproduction. And the survival part is interesting because some animals are diurnal, some, some animals are nocturnal, like mice is diurnal. And that has also to do with whether they're prey or they're going to be preyed on. So in other words, they tend to be diurnal if they're going to be preyed on because that's easier for them to hide. And so, I mean, it's it's all very much driven by um, the, the day-night cycle and the circadian rhythms and for the two main reasons, survivalship and reproduction. Huh, interesting. What about bears? You know, they go to sleep for a long time. What's that about? That's the same thing. It's they, they hibernate um, because they know they're not going to be able to eat during the winter months. So what, what it does, their biological clock knows that it's winter time, and then it really slows down everything in their body so that they don't need as much food or they don't need, um, you know, anything during that period that they know they're not going to be able to survive out there. Um, so it's it's a very similar thing. It's, you know, survival and, and reproduction. Those two things drive us on every animal in the animal kingdom. It's pretty amazing. You know, everything I read about sleep, sleep is very important to so many of us. It says, you know, shut off all the light in your room. Make sure that the clock isn't glaring and make sure that there's no light seeping in under the door. And every once in a while, I will wear a sleep mask just to make sure, you know, that nothing bothers me. But w what's the deal? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, as I mentioned the, the the light from your alarm clock or the light, um, you know, underneath the door, uh, these are not going to disrupt your sleep through the biological clock. And the reason is when you close your eyes, we've done some work measuring the eyelid transmittance. And you have very, very low transmittance through the eyelids, especially on the blue part of the spectrum. So the short wavelength, which is the light that affects your biological clock, it's 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 like less than half a percent transmittant. So um, it when you close your eyes, you're very much protected from that light affecting your biological clock. However, it's very interesting because you have about 10 to 13 percent transmittance on the longer wavelengths, and I have a feeling that this is almost like a your flight and fight system, that you still have a sense of what's happening in the outside environment in case you need to wake up on an emergency or, you know, something happens that you need to, to wake up. So some people are more sensitive to this um, sort of light coming anywhere in terms of how much they bother you, and other people are not. So I think this is very much on the personal side that some people are, are probably more in tune with the external environment and that little light will bother them. It will not affect their biological clock, but it can still affect their sleep because it won't allow them to sleep. So it's, it's really a personal preference or, you know, people are different in that regard. So you can, for example, I can sleep, you know, some people can sleep on the beach, right, with all the sun sure. and, and some people. So it really is it's very, um, it's very personal in a way. Uh, but, but I think it has to do with that need to somehow have a connection because it's very interesting what they say about sleep is that if sleep didn't exist 
for a very good reason, which we're learning now that it is for a very good reason, um, that it would have been the biggest mistake nature had done. Because when we're sleepy, we're completely vulnerable, right? Because mm-hmm. we, we don't have an idea of what's happening outside. You, you, you know, it takes you a while to wake up and react. And there's a lot of things that put you in, in danger when you're asleep. And yet, everybody needs sleep. Um, if you know, they've done a study with cats where if, if they, every time the cat fell asleep, they would hit a bucket of, of water and wake up, the cat died in three days. Whoa. So you need sleep. Sleep is something we need. Um, we're learning uh, how, why we need, and there's a few competing hypotheses, but um, it's still a mystery. You know, it's still something that it's everybody needs, everybody likes, because it's, you know, nothing like a good night's sleep. But yet we're vulnerable when we're asleep. Now, you use the word vulnerable, but of course, you know, I find that if I have some major problem, uh, you know, weighing on me, uh, that I don't sleep well, uh, then light or any or alarm clocks anything else, mm-hmm. you know, bothers me. So th- there is a connection between light and mental health, isn't there? Yes, there is. And in fact, it's very interesting because uh, seasonal affective disorder, which obviously we upstate m- can suffer a lot more than people um, down south, um, has to do with the shorter days in the winter. And light is a recognized treatment for seasonal affective disorder in the sense that if if a person is diagnosed with it, the person can actually, the insurance companies would pay for light boxes where what they do is they're they're artificially increasing the amount of light during their daytime hours. So they're they're moving their dawn to a little bit earlier than it normally happens. Um, So that's the one sort of... uh, disease that it is recognized. Now, there has been a lot of work looking at depression per se, and in fact, we found a very strong effect of the light on depression in Alzheimer's disease patients as well as in cancer patients. Mm. So they're, they're doing more work with the general depression and how it can affect the general depression. In fact, they're seeing a direct link between the photoreceptors in the eye to parts of the brain that modulate depression. Um, so, you know, I think we're learning more and more, but it, it, it is definitely linked. Now, what is the Alzheimer connection? Well, the, the Alzheimer's connection is very interesting. So one of, one of the things about Alzheimer's disease is that um, they, they tend to be very um, unsynchronized or w- what happens is they're sleeping for three hours, then they're awake for four hours, then they're sleeping again for a couple of hours. So they don't have a consolidated sleep and wake cycle. And that becomes very hard on caregivers. And it's actually one of the main reasons why they are institutionalized is because the, the, the family or the caregiver just can't put up with it because they have to work the following day and people are awake in the middle of the night and so on. And um, in addition, they tend to be indoors a lot. So they tend to be in dimmer spaces a lot more. So they lose that connection with outdoors, with the robust light-dark pattern. So 
what we found was that by giving them that bright light during the day and dim light at night, they were improving their sleep. And then by improving the sleep, we saw a reduction in the depression as well as a reduction in their agitation. And mm-hmm. they were eating better. They were behaving better. They were more social. So it was a very, very strong effect. And the longer we gave the light, so we did a study for four weeks, and then we did a study for six months. And it's incredible. You see over the course of six months an improvement in the sleep, an improvement in depression, and an improvement in their agitation. So it's a continuous improvement. It, it just doesn't stop. It just keeps accumulating the benefits. So, um, you know, my, I, I guess my my goal in life is that every nursing home, every elderly care facility has this very bright lights during the day and dim lights at night or, you know, outdoor activities or something that we can assure that, that they are getting this, this robust light-dark pattern. Huh. To quote an old song from the 1950s, when I can't sleep, I take a little bit of, not a lot, but a tiny bit of melatonin, which helps me. Maybe mm-hmm. psychologically as opposed to as opposed mm-hmm. to, to really helping, but it seems to. So what is the connection between light and medicine? It's actually very interesting. So let me start with melatonin. So melatonin is, is, a, is a hormone that we produce at night and in darkness. So, so what, what it does, it tells your body it's nighttime. So by telling your body it's nighttime, your body knows that it's time to go to sleep. So even though melatonin is not a sleeping pill, what it does, it, it informs the body to be ready for sleep. So it, it, it basically it's a messenger of nighttime to the body. So that helps with falling asleep, okay? So that's, that's sort of the, the connection that you have. Now light, if you expose yourself to light at night, you actually will seize melatonin production. So light suppresses the production of melatonin at night. So what it can do is it can mess up your your body clock. So for example, uh-huh. there's a lot being said about self-luminous displays before you go to bed. So if it's very bright for a long period of time, what you're doing is you're delaying that melatonin messaging to your body that it's nighttime so you'll have a harder time falling asleep. So that may be the issue. Now, the other part of, of drugs in, in general, medication in general, that hasn't been as studied as I would have liked to see it study is what they call chronotherapy. And what that is is that the timing in which you deliver uh, a drug, for example, cancer treatment or insulin for diabetes, um, that follows a circadian pattern. So depending on time of day, you can actually have higher efficacy of the drug and you can minimize the side effects of the drug. So, for example, a lot of people say, you know, prednisone, which is, mm-hmm. you know, very common. People say take it in the morning, don't take it at night. And the reason is that, it, you know, if you take it at night, it may in fact impact your sleep, for example. So there are medications that, depending on time of day, it will actually improve the effectiveness of it. So you can actually change your biological clock with light so that 
you receive the medication at the right circadian time. So that's really a whole new area of investigation that there has been some people in Europe working with that, but I think that um, there's a lot more that we can learn and even utilize that. And to me, that will only be possible when, for example, we're working on that device that tells you, you know, what time to get light, what time to remove light. A device like that can also help you with what time should you take your medication. Does that exist? No. It doesn't the, exist yet. But so that's you're going to work on it, and you guys are going to make a lot of money. I know. I know. We <laughs> should work on it. There's, there's a lot of research to be done, but I think that is, you know, that's what we're calling precision medicine, right? Sure. Everybody's going to that area, and I think for light, this is how it's going to end up at Dr. some point. Dr. Figueroa, let me ask you this. Are there specific diseases that we know of based on your research and the research of others that are affected either negatively or positively by the existence of extra or less light? So, for example, do we know anything about cancer or any of that stuff? Yes, and, and I can tell you that the effect of light is always through regulating circadian rhythms and sleep. And yes, there has been a lot of work where it's been shown that circadian disruption or lack of synchrony between your biological clock and the external environment or your biological clock and the, the, the rest of the clocks that you have in your body because your pancreas, your liver, um, every organ in your body has its own little clock that it's synchronized to your biological clock. So if this is in disarray, and how do you get this in disarray? By getting light at the wrong time or not getting enough mm -hmm. light during mm -hmm. the day, for example. That has been linked to increased risk for diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, cancer. All of these diseases are associated with circadian disruption as well as with sleep disruption. Because those two are very much linked. If you have circadian disruption, you're going to have sleep disruption. Uh -huh. So, yes, and we're learning more and more uh, that the biological clock and circadian disruption increases risk for Alzheimer's disease, for example. There's a lot of work now looking at uh, circadian disruption as well as sleep disruption because hmm. the hypothesis is that sleep cleans up the brain. And if you're not sleeping well, you're actually not cleaning up the brain and that lack of cleaning up increases the plaque accumulation that is associated with Alzheimer's disease, for example. Um, so I have to tell you, it is extremely important. Circadian rhythms and sleep, they're both extremely important for health and well-being. And light is the main driver of circadian rhythms. Um, so, you know, it has a huge indirect impact in all, all health outcomes. So let's go over a circadian rhythm. I know you've kept referring to it during this time, but give us some definition that we can all live with and understand. It is every rhythm in our body that is going to have a peak and a trough over the course of the 24-hour day. So sleep-wake cycle is a great example. We have circadian rhythms of um, like insulin, glucose, uh, performance, so you have peak performance at certain times of day and trough performance. Body temperature, your body temperature changes over the course of the day. So it has a peak in the, during the day and a trough 
at the latter part of the of the night. So it's every rhythm that runs with a period slightly longer or closer to 24 hours. So, so the sleep-wake cycle is a great example. Well, yes, and it is for me because, you know, I get up at 1 o'clock, one thirty in the morning. Is that... <laughs> I got to sleep at six o'clock at night. Yeah. Yeah. So my question to you is, does that endanger our health, according to what you and your wonderful researchers have found? Well, I hate to tell you, Uh but um, (laughs) there has been a lot of work with shift workers. And Uh shift workers are definitely at higher risk for many, many diseases, including cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, Now, there's a couple of things that I think are important is the shift work that people talk about is those that rotate. So, in other words, they're working for two or three nights a week, then they're off for, you know, three or four nights, then they're working again. In your case, if you maintain that regularity, it should be okay. The problem is that if you, on the weekends, for example, you get off of that shift, then you come back into it. That's where the problem is, because what we really want is regularity, right? Obviously, it's socially speaking, your schedule is different than everybody else's. But if you maintain that on a regular basis, it should be okay for you. Um, but the problem is going back and forth. That is where the issues have, have been shown. Mm, it certainly has occurred to me that you're correct about that. But now, look, most people get up in the middle of the night you know, to pee, let's mm-hmm. put it that way. And that interrupts your circadian or other rhythms in your body. And you are studying light because there are those people who don't turn the lights on. My wife is one of them. I turn the light on because I think it's very important. How important is the dissonance caused by turning lights on when you should be in the dark? It depends on how long you turn the lights on. If it's quick, a couple minutes, it should be fine. And, and I actually agree with you. You should have a little bit of light. I wouldn't turn very, very bright lights because it will just be uncomfortable for you to go back to sleep. Um, but I think having some type of nightlight is important because of, mm. obviously, the ability to walk safely, right, for, the, for falls mm. and so on. Um, and if you turn very bright lights, what happens when you turn those very bright lights off, it becomes very hard for you to see and it be, may become mm. actually a health hazard coming back to bed. So if it is for a couple of minutes, it should not affect your biological clock. Now, if it's going to be for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, then you definitely want to have not very bright lights. You want to have lower light levels that would allow you to see without necessarily uh, allowing you to go to the bathroom. Now, what's very interesting, if you think about, I mean, you, you asked about circadian rhythms. I mean, you, you even have a circadian rhythm in kidney functions, and you you do tend to reduce that kidney function. You know, when you're younger, um, kids sleep, you know, 10 hours, and they don't go to the bathroom. They don't wake up at night to go to the bathroom. Um, But, you know, and even if you do it, you do it once. You don't do it like you do it during the day. So even kidney has this circadian rhythm, which is more, more, you know, you use more. You go to the bathroom more during the day than you go at night, for example. 
But again, if if it's a quick turn on the lights, it's not a problem. Um, but I recommend you know lower light levels and night lights to allow you to go in and out safely in terms of the navigation. So that leads me to a question. I, I don't mean it to be disrespectful, but is there a difference between the way in which men and women react to light? No, that's actually a very good question. Um, there hasn't been a lot of work looking at uh, the response to light. We have, from the Alzheimer's work we've done, we have a suggestion that um, women will respond less to that light than men. Hmm. But that's actually something we're writing a proposal right now to pursue and to work a little bit more on it, because there could be a difference. Um, There has been a little bit of work looking at racial differences, and there's some work suggesting that, for example, uh, blacks have a longer circadian uh, period. So in other words, instead of 24.2 hours, they have 24.3 or 24.4 hours, so they would need a little bit more light to maintain that synchronization. Um, And we have some very anecdotal data from the lab that Asians, for example, um, respond very little to light at night. So we were hiring, you know, students to, to run our studies, and some of the students were Asians, others were Caucasians, and what we saw was that the, the Asians, for the same amount of light, were suppressing less melatonin, suggesting that they were responding to that light less. So these were all observations. We didn't do a very detailed study, but I think that the future will be to start looking at those individual differences because then you can have those individual lighting solutions for the different groups of people. Um, I mean, within within the same group of people, males or females, there's a huge difference in how one will respond to the same amount of light. Mm. And we're still learning about that. Amazing, amazing. You know, in the... Uh... You know, all of the the World War II stories and criminal justice films, there's always this business about shining light in people's eyes to make them mm-hmm. talk. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of uh, using those lights. and That's more of your visual response, glare. Um, it, it can be hurtful, right, if, sure. if, if there's a big, big, bright light shining into your eye. It becomes very uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, for, you need bright lights, you need like, you know, daylight is, it's a great example of very bright light, but it's very diffuse. So you don't necessarily, um, feel it mm. as being bad, but then if you think about it, you can't look mm. at the sun, right? Cause it's this very, very bright sure. directional light source. And I think that's, that, that was the goal of, of using that to torture people because it becomes so uncomfortable. You are such an interesting person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just do interesting stuff. And, you know, it's very, it's very amazing because I tell people it's so simple. I mean, we have it out there. You have it every day, right? The sun mm. rises and the sun sets. We have it every day, this robust light-dark pattern. 
and we tend to shield from it in the built environment. So let me stop. Which is great for me because it gave me it gave me a purpose of studying it, right? And what sure. is the impact of shielding ourselves from it? If we were all outdoors, we wouldn't have any of these problems. Well, so, as, as we speak, uh, we are having bright days, sun shining, and we're having much more diffuse, grayer days. Does that make a difference? Well, it certainly does because, you you, you know, a blue sky, uh, blue sort of sunny day, you're having 100,000 lux of light. Um, On a cloudy day, you're probably going to have 5,000, 6,000. But this is a lot more than what you have indoors. You have indoors is 300, 200. At home, it can be 100 lux. So that gives you an idea of how dim the indoor environment is. And that's really the issue for me is is that we became sort of indoor species that are just not having this robust light-dark pattern. So bottom line is even outside in a cloudy day, it's better than being indoors. Um, but there isn't any – and I haven't really understood yet, but I can tell you from my own perception, there isn't anything like a bright sunny day there is something about a bright sunny day that just makes you feel better dr figuero let me ask you this first of all i want to get a definition you said you used the word lux one which i'm not familiar with what is that so lux is is a measure of uh, light that riches a surface based on how you respond to it with um two out of three of your photoreceptors in the eye so so you know, when you when you go by a light bulb, uh, you see in the box 860 lumens, okay? And what LUX is is how many of these lumens reaches a surface, okay? So it's measuring how much of that is reaching a surface. And the surface that you're thinking right now is your eye. That's the most important surface because that's what enables you to see. Um, so, you know, when you have a lot of lumens out of a light bulb, you're most likely to have higher amounts of lux levels reaching a surface because there's more light energy coming out of that light bulb. Leading me to ask you, you were born in South America, mm-hmm. right? Right. How much does your initial introduction to life matter in terms of your reception of light? You know, that's a good question. I think that I always took it for granted. And I have to say that one of the things that made most different for me when I moved upstate was um, the very strong uh, seasons. And by seasons, it's not mm. the change in leaves, and but the change in day length. To me, that was very... And until this day, I do not like to wake up in the dark. Mm. I mean, winter months, when it gets October, November, I am cranky because I, I do wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning. So... You know, waking up in the dark is it's painful for me. So one thing I learned is I have bright, you know, lamps next to my bed. Turn them on, and you know, it's it's like it makes me feel better. Um, so I think that that to me, I took it for granted. And when I moved up, I started paying a lot more attention to how important it is and and how different it is. So. When you apply for grants from NIH or NIMH Mental Health, more and more, I suspect, you're making the argument that light counts. 
Yes, and and honestly, this has been um, – we have been very successful with grants from the National Institutes of Health. I mean, um, and I think the reason is that people are looking for a non-pharmacological intervention. Mm-hmm. How do we do things without necessarily having to use drugs? I mean, this is true, for example. They're looking at things like pain. How do we find ways to reduce pain in people – with non-pharmacological interventions because of all the opioid crisis and so on. And there has been some work. We're actually writing a proposal right now to, to follow on that work, showing that green light reduces pain, migraine pain or back pain. I'm sorry. What do you mean green light? Green. Color green. Really? Like, so it's, yeah. if you put a green filter in front of a lamp and shine it at somebody, it might make a difference. That's what the research says. Now, one of the things that we have, um, we want to do in the research now, that's why we're writing the proposal, is the question you exactly had, what do you mean by green light? Because not all of the researchers that are doing work in this area are very um, careful in specifying what green light is. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to be a little bit more specific about what is green light and what exactly is affecting? So part of what we're going to try to do is try to find more objective markers of pain. Instead of people saying, I have pain, I don't have pain, is saying, well, does it affect your brain? Does it affect um, some of your biomarkers, uh, something in the blood? Is there, is there anything in the blood that changes by giving that light? So that's what we're going to be trying to do with our research. Again, this is in the very beginning but it's 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 something that coming to Mount Sinai, it's allowing us to expand mm. to this kind of research, uh, because you know you, you now can can start collaborating with mm-hmm. the, the clinicians here to be able to to figure it out solutions. Um, and I tell you, it has been so receptive. Everybody, it's really, and it, I think it's the same thing with NIH is that everybody wants to find ways of of using these non-pharmacological interventions. And and this is such a simple solution. You can control your own life. You don't need to have a prescription for it, right? You you, you can do it on your own and and you have the power of making a difference to you or to your loved ones just by by getting the right amount of light during the day. Well, to the psychiatric community, it has to be very important. You think, yeah. you, you think about this. So you said green light and red light, which I find very interesting because, you know, when you come to the corner, there's a green light or a red light. I know this is wacky. Well, one has to wonder whether or not on some subconscious level, somebody knew that red light meant something different from green light. Yes. And I think it may have because, for example... We're doing work with red light, too, and what we're showing is actually red light has an alerting effect in the brain. So it's almost like your flight and fight system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like I don't know if it, there's a psychological impact. For example, we associate red light with fire, with danger, right? So, so you, you right away you get, like, active, and we see that in brain activities. You measure people's brain activity, you give them red light, and they, they will have an increase in brain activities. Their reaction times will be faster. Mm. So we're thinking, and what's most interesting, you don't suppress the melatonin levels at night. 
So you maintain your melatonin levels, but you still have that alerting effect. So that would be very good for shift workers, for example, because mm. you don't want to mess with their melatonin cycles because that has been shown to be a problem. But you want to keep them alert because, as I say, you get in 4 a.m., you get in uh, you know, the emergency room, you want perky physicians and perky nurses. So you can keep them perky without affecting their melatonin levels, which may be a good thing. So... You know, once you understand light and you can manipulate light, it, you, there's a lot of use for it. And I think that's that's really our success has been doing that. That's where we're going. So obviously you do studies and you have to have test patients. Where do you get them from? Well, we get them from the community. And we are actually recruiting for five studies that we're going through, um, basically from the majority are with seniors, um, older adults, anyone, you know, age, uh, I hate to say it, it's not really seniors because age 50 and older, we're all seniors at this point, right? You, you but, get the AARP magazine after 50. I know, I know. So anybody that gets AARP magazine is, is qualified to our studies. Let me put it this way. <laughs> um, but we're also getting people with mild cognitive impairment as well as with Alzheimer's disease. Um, and we're, we're doing a series of different types of studies um, to look at the impact of uh, light during the day on a variety of outcomes. So we're looking at cognition, we're looking at sleep, we're looking at diabetes, we're looking at um, performance. Or, what are you finding? I'm sorry for interrupting. What are you finding with the diabetes? Well, it's interesting. What we're finding is very. it, it has to do with with the, the fact that if you have circadian disruption and sleep disruption, you're at high risk for diabetes. So what we're looking mm. at is if you can regulate their sleep and circadian rhythms, improve the sleep, you are improving their metabolism. So you're improving the, the, the glucose tolerance and reducing uh, diabetes risk. So that's what we're looking at mm. right now. We're still collecting data, but there are data from... Um, healthy younger adults that this is true. So we're trying to now extend that to Alzheimer's, older adults, and, and mild cognitive impairment. So if we understand that the hip bone is attached to whatever, the ankle bone or wherever, you know, these things are quite complicated. If a kid has to get up three times during the night or is woken by his parents to pee, that might be a lifelong association with light. Yes? No? Yes, yes. And and it's very interesting is, you know, being able to, to follow uh, kids from very young age until later age, there is the hypothesis that if you have environmental insults, and that could be a disrupted light-dark pattern when you're young, you may imprint something in your brain, mm -hmm. and then later on, if you're going to do shift work, for example, that imprinting may come out as breast cancer, for example. Mm. So there's, there's, it's a lifelong, it's really a lifelong exposure. Um, and, and I think that we're, everybody now is starting to, to look at the idea of measuring this long-term exposure and how, you know, how we... We, what we get when we're young may affect how 
healthy we are when when we're older. Interesting. We're talking with Dr. Mariana Figueroa, director of the Light and Health Research Center, which is the new Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Research Center in New York State's Capital District. Do you find that being in the Capital District uh, is helpful uh, in terms of, hey, funding, attention from the legislature. Is there something specific that you can tell us about being here? Well, I hope so. Um, I think that, to me, obviously the most important thing was being able to keep the team without having to relocate them. But I also think that the Capital District, and I have been doing work in the Capital District for over 25 years, so we have a lot of good relationships with, you know, hospitals around the area, nursing homes around the area. Um, so I think that, you know, just our contacts with the people in the cap- capital district has been absolutely amazing in the past, you so, know, 15, so, so 20 the, years. So the capital district is your lab in a way. The capital district is our lab. The capital district is really where we are and uh, where we are set up. We are collecting data also uh, downstate in New York City, but um, our focus and our main lab is in the capital district. That's correct. So, you know, there is, of course, a lot of interest in sleep. Books coming out all the time. We are hearing from people who go to see sleep doctors as a whole segment. And from what you're saying, your work, doctor, the Light and Health Research Center coincides pretty much with all the people who are interested in sleep. That's exactly right. That's that's exactly right. Anybody uh, that is interested in sleep, and, you know, a lot of times you don't even know that your sleep problems may be as simple as getting more light during the day because mm-hmm. we have shown that higher amounts of light during the day helps you sleep better at night. So it can be as simple as going for a walk every day for one hour, and, and you can improve your sleep by doing that. Um, so we hope that you know, the research we're doing can be, you know, through through programs like yours can be more disseminated and people can can think about it and perhaps participate in the studies or, you know, start asking their physicians about it so that that could be a simple solution without without any pills or anything. So if they want to be in touch with you, how do they do it? They can call. Barbara is my research nurse that, that recruits people. Her name is Barbara Plitnik, and it's uh, her phone number is 518-288-6051. Yeah. So do you consider your work to be potentially revolutionary? I do. I do because, and interesting enough, because of its simplicity. Um, sometimes you don't have to be complicated to be revolutionary. Um, and I think it is. I really do think that we have the potential to change people's lives for better with a very simple solution. I think the fact that the Mount Sinai has seen fit to want this association with your center has got to be important in itself. People have got to say, yeah, you know, this means something. Yes, and, and I tell you, they, they, and, and they have been so receptive. It's, it's just uh, everybody's excited about it. Um, and, you know, we have been doing a lot of collaborations around. I've, I've done a blog already for Mount Sinai. We've done interviews. And, because they are seeing a potential for, um, for the impact that the center can have on, on health. Um, so I absolutely think it's a... 
It's a simple and yet extremely effective solution. Well, I like what you had to say about getting the word out. We, are, of course, are doing a whole hour here, which people will hear and be able to receive. But also we have other programming, which I think is extremely important. We have a program called Vox Pop in which people call up and ask questions. I'd, mm-hmm. lo- I'd love to make sure that you're on that. Uh, Absolutely. So, th- so when people ask, um, they you know you can answer. And I want to point out that Dr. Mariano Figueroa is director of the Light and Health Research Center, which is the new Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Research Center in New York's Capital District. So as my last question, and we only have a minute, I'd love to ask you: How did Carl Icon and the Icon Center come to the Capital District? Maybe we'll do that when we have an, an opening of our of our lab there. I mean, I will ask. Yeah. It doesn't hurt to ask. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 but that's something I'm looking forward to is finding. Uh, maybe we'll name the center something. Who knows? It's wonderful to talk with you. Well, thank you very much. We've been in conversation with Dr. Mariana Figuero, director of the Light and Health Research Center, which is the new Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York's Capital District. So all I can say, Dr. Figuero, is we're very appreciative of your taking this time to see us. Well, I'm very happy to be part of it, and any other opportunities I'll be happy to take. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.